Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Welcome to the program, ladies and gentlemen. I hope that this finds you and yours doing well, and I want to thank you very much for joining me. I hope that you and your family had a good Christmas as things probably start to kind of get back to um, some sense of normalcy, kind of get back into the good old routine. So uh, anyway, I want us to pick back up where we left off, and we're continuing our series entitled Santa Paul's. And I know that uh, the timing on this was not really <laughs> very good. Uh, should have. I wish I had gotten all of this in before December 25th, but uh, hey, it is what it is. And so, if you heard our the previous program, you know that I was talking about how Santa has so many of God's attributes, and by ascribing to Santa the attributes of God, even though. We may not be consciously doing this. the The reality of the, the the matter is is this: is that it's already been done. We may not be thinking, "Okay, ha ha ha, I'm going to teach my kids about this character named Santa Claus, and I'm going to be sure my kids understand that Santa has hit, possesses many of God's incommunicable attributes." Granted, I, I don't know of any parent who who is doing that with that kind of forethought. So, uh, but that's not the point. It's not that uh, we as parents try to instill that in our kids that Santa has God's attributes. The fact of the matter is, is that it's already been done for us. We we've already uh, the, the the origin of Santa Claus and in the way he's been portrayed and and the 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 typical. Um, figure, mythical figure of Santa possesses God's incommunicable attributes and and has before any of us were um, born in all likelihood, unless you're really, really, really old. You'd have to be like, I don't know, 100 and, 180, so probably nobody uh, 180 years old listening to us. So, so yeah, before any of us were born. So it's already been done for us, and, and, and that is the problem. And by ascribing to Santa the attributes of God, what has happened is that we have, in fact, uh, in fact, ascribed to him worship, worship. And this is a very, very important point, dear ones. And this is something that cannot be missed. By ascribing to Santa or anyone or anything else any of the incommunicable attributes of God, we are, by definition, ascribing to him worship. Now, we may not be bowing down at Santa. We may not have him, you know, uh, uh, in the, right there in the manger scene or something with baby Jesus or something like that. We may not be thinking that we're worshiping Santa, but by him possessing the incommunicable attributes of God, that is, in fact, by definition, what we are doing. When, when we teach our kids that this mythical figure possesses the incommunicable attributes of God, that is, by definition, ascribing to this mythical creature worship. Uh, truth is truth regardless of whether or not we believe it. Truth is truth regardless of our intentions, uh, no, no matter how benign they may be or how benign we perceive them to be. That's not the issue. Truth is the issue. 
We worship God not primarily because of what he has done, but because of who he is, who he is. Now, because of everything that he has done stems from who he is. So, uh, yes, we worship God for what he has done, but primarily and more, more fundamental than that, uh, the, the more in, in, uh, uh, what's the right word? The incipient view of that, I suppose, is that, is that we worship God primarily for who he is and everything that he has done stems from who he is, if, if that makes sense. Uh, God is worthy of worship because of his attributes. That is that what, that is what makes him worthy of worship. And these same attributes have been given to the fat man in the red suit. I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. In this passage, Paul addresses an issue that had arisen in the Corinthian church. Paul was on his second missionary journey, and he came to the city of Corinth. He preached the gospel. God saved a number of his elect, and a church was born there. And Paul spent about 18 months with this new church, with these young uh, believers uh, in Christ, and discipled them, to, tried to grow them up and mature them in their relationship with Christ, their understanding of the gospel, understanding of doctrine. And after about a year and a half, Paul left this young church, and he went on to other destinations to preach the gospel. Well, a problem arose in the church in Corinth. Actually, a lot of problems arose in the church in Corinth, but that's that's a that's a whole other series of sermons there. But uh, a, 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 one of the problems, one of the problems that arose in the church in Corinth, centered around the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. Okay, now what was happening? Some of these young believers in Corinth. They were they were kind of feeling the tug of their former um, pagan religious beliefs, and some of them were going back into the pagan temples there in Corinth, and they were participating at least at some level in some of the uh, accompanying pagan rituals, including but not necessarily limited to, but certainly including the meeting the the meeting the meeting of eat the eating of meat the eating of meat that had been sacrificed to these pagan idols. Uh, these Corinthian believers, these young, immature believers, they were, not, they were not going to these rituals with the intent of actively participating in the worship of pagan gods. That was not their intent. What they wanted to do by going to these places, by uh, going to these pagan rituals and participating at least at some level in the activity, they were, all they were really wanting to do was to maintain friendships and uh, uh, fellowship with their their friends who are not believers. Uh, fellowship not the right word, but their friendships. Uh, they they wouldn't didn't want to completely break all cut all ties with their with their former besties, you know, with their former friends who are still in the paganism. So they didn't want to cut all ties, and undoubtedly, undoubtedly, uh, these young immature Corinthian believers didn't want to sever those ties because they wanted to try to influence their pagan friends with the gospel. So what they would do is they would go to these rituals and they would eat some of the meat that had been sacrificed to the idols. And so Paul hears about this and he writes to them and he gives them a stern warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's read this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 
verses 14 through 22. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Idolatry? Well, wait a minute. What, what are you talking about, Paul? These, these Corinthians weren't uh, actively involved in idolatry, were they? He continues, verse 15. Paul says, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? So what is Paul saying here? Paul is warning these immature Corinthian believers. He is warning them that simply by being present, simply by being present in these pagan rituals, that, that they are giving their implicit approval to those same rituals. And they are giving their implicit approval simply by not speaking out against the pagan worship. They are giving their approval by not speaking out against the pagan worship and, and they are giving their approval by eating the meat that had been sacrificed to the idols. And in so doing, they are unwittingly Dining with demons. They are unwittingly dining with demons. Now, the idols did not have real deities behind them, of course. In fact, Paul readily acknowledged this in verses 19 and 20 when Paul says, What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, he says, but I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. So, Paul is, he, what he's saying here, he said, yeah, okay, these these idols, you know, these wood and stone idols, they're not anything. They're hunks of wood and hunks of stone, and that's it. You know, you can pray to them all day long. They're not going to hear you. You can make funny faces at them. They're not going to react. No, they're just inanimate. <laughs> they're just in, inanimate blocks of wood and blocks of stone, so they're not anything. But, Paul said, there are real there are real spiritual forces behind them. No, they're not gods. No, they're not to be worshipped. But there are spiritual forces behind them. Very real spiritual forces. What are these spiritual forces? They're demons. Demons. Paul warns them that the things that the pagans sacrificed, they sacrificed, as he said, quote, to demons and not to God. Okay, so dear friends, this was not a neutral experience for the Corinthians, as they naively assumed. Okay, they they went in there thinking, 
oh, this is no big deal. Yeah, they got pagans. I mean, they got pagan idols there. They got little little gods of wood and little gods of stone. But hey, I'm a Christian, and I know there's no that those uh, little statues made out of wood and stone are just that. They're just statues. I know that. And so they go in there naively thinking that there's nothing to it. It's just a neutral experience. No big deal. They're not real anyway. They're just blocks of wood and blocks of stone. That's it. Like I said, you can make funny faces at them all day long. They're not going to respond. They're not going to do anything to you. They're inanimate. They're not alive. But Paul was saying this is naive. No, there are no real gods uh, behind them, but... There are spiritual forces at work. There are spiritual entities behind them. Not gods, but demons. Demons. And you may be thinking, oh, Justin, that sounds kind of dramatic, don't you think? Well, no, not unless Scripture is dramatic. Not in, not unless Paul is being dramatic. You know, but I don't I don't think Paul was uh, I don't think he was putting on a show here. I don't think he was. He was trying to, you know, uh, exaggerate here. This was not hyperbole. Paul was being very frank with them. It was demonic because behind every false religion, okay, behind every false religion, no matter how primitive it may seem to us today, there are demons lurking there. Um, is Islam a false religion? Yes. Does Allah exist? Nope, he doesn't. By the way, if you ever hear somebody say, Oh, Allah and Yahweh are the same God. No, they're not. No, they're, do you know I actually heard an, an interim pastor, Southern Baptist pastor, say as he was teaching um, Wednesday night, I was there, um, he, he said Allah and Yahweh are the same God. Unbelievable. No, they're not. Allah does not exist. So, no. Um, thankfully, he wasn't at that church for very long. But anyway, uh, Allah does not exist. Uh, there, there's no, there's no uh, real God behind Buddhism. Buddha's dead. There, there's no real God behind uh, Shintoism or, you know, all the Hindu gods. They're, they're whatever they got, three million or so, give or take a few gods. Are they real? No, of course they're not real. But what is real is that there are demons behind them. Every, every false religion is satanically inspired. Every false religion is satanically inspired. Satan and his demonic horde have inspired every single false religion that has ever existed. Satan, Lucifer, the, the son of the morning, was the highest angel created. He was closest to God and orchestrated his worship. However, Satan came to desire that same worship for himself. He longed to have for himself the worship that was rightly given to God. Iniquity and pride were found in his heart, and he, along with a third of the angels, whom he persuaded to follow his lead, were cast out of heaven. Satan longs more than anything to be worshipped. And he will deceive by any means necessary to acquire it. Do you know that's what Satan wants? Satan wants more than anything to be worshipped. That's what he wants. He wants He wants your worship. He wants my worship. Uh, he, he wants the worship of, of everybody who, who is drawing breath. That's what he wants. 
He wants worship. He wants to, to steal it from God and have it for himself. He has quite the entitlement uh, mentality, oh, Satan does. He is worshipped. Is he worshipped? Yeah, he is. He is worshipped by non-Christians by creating for them false religions and false gods, such as, you know, you got the Egyptian deities, you have ancestor worship. Even today, a lot of people worship their ancestors. You've got deities of nature, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, you know, whatever, all that, all that, all those, all those pagan non-Christian religions. They are, no, Buddha is not, well, Buddha was a real man, but he was no god. He's stone cold dead. Uh, but there's no God of Buddha. There's no Allah. There is no uh, God of uh, Zoroastrianism. There's there's no flying spaghetti monster or whatever. You know those gods aren't real. But when people engage in these false religions, Scientology, whatever, what they're doing, wittingly or unwittingly, is they're worshiping Satan. You don't have to be a Satanist to worship Satan. Do you know that? You don't have to be a card carrying member of the Church of Satan. To worship Satan. All you got to do to worship Satan is being a false religion. You can be a Roman Catholic and worship Satan. Unwittingly. If you're a Buddhist, you're worshiping Satan. If you're a Muslim, you're worshiping Satan. If you're a Hindu, you're worshiping Satan. That's what they're doing. And that's what he desires. Now, for those who profess Christ as Savior... Satan's got to be a bit more cunning, right? Because all people who profess Christ, they would never in a million years knowingly give worship to Satan. They would never in a million years worship false gods. So he's got to be more cunning. He's got to be more clever. For these folks, for the folks who profess Christ, he devises clever counterfeits. He gives them counterfeits. What kind of counterfeits? Well, he offers to people who profess Christ, he offers them the prosperity gospel. He offers to them the social gospel. He offers to them um, uh, the worship of, of dead saints and the Virgin Mary, as in Roman Catholicism. He, wa- he offers to people a watered-down gospel, seeker-sensitive gospel that's devoid of any cause for repentance, like Joel Osteen. That's what he offers professing Christians. He makes it look as close to the real thing as possible without it actually being the real thing. You know, Roman Catholicism, at first glance, looks kind of like the real thing. I mean, they they claim to believe in the deity of Christ and his death and resurrection and all that good stuff. But they've got a false gospel. Looks pretty close to the real thing, but it's not. It's like imitation Coke, you know, like a <laughs> like generic, uh, generic Coca-Cola. It's not the real thing. Coke will tell you that. Not the real thing. So that's what Satan does. He makes it look close to the real thing without it actually being the real thing. He adds a little bit to it. It's it's salvation is by grace through faith plus something. Roman Catholics say it salvation is by grace through faith plus your works. And you know what? Even any time you add a plus to the gospel, what becomes the focus? The gospel? No. The plus does. Whatever that plus is, that becomes the focus. And that's a different gospel. It's a different gospel. He does not come to the Christian. Satan does not come to the Christian red and scaly, carrying a pitchfork. No, he's smarter than that. He disguises himself, how? As an angel of light. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. 
2 Corinthians 11, verse 4. Something, he disguises himself as something innocent, something harmless, something like Santa. Now, some of you have just heard me say that, and you are maybe really upset. Um, you think that if you do Santa with your children, I am accusing you of worshiping Satan. Please, dear friend, uh, if this happens to be you, I am not accusing you of anything. Okay, I'm not accused. I promise you, I'm not accusing you of anything. I am simply offering to you a warning from compassion and from love. Paul was not accusing the Corinthians. He wasn't accusing them of anything. He was warning them. He was trying to shepherd them away from the danger that they were unwittingly exposing themselves to. Note that he was not warning them out of self-righteousness and pride. He did not consider himself to be any better than they were. In fact, Paul referred to himself as how? The chief of sinners, right? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. So he, he wasn't coming to them out of any uh, misguided sense of self-righteousness. He was warning them from a heart burdened with concern, with compassion, and love for them. He loved these Corinthians. He loved the socks off of them. And as the one who first brought the gospel to them, he thought of them as his spiritual children. Paul is warning them that by participating on any level with the pagan rituals, that they are unwittingly and innocently exposing themselves to demons. Now, as believers, they were in no danger of losing their salvation, right? That's not at all the issue. We're not talking about them losing their salvation. I'm not saying if you do Santa Claus, uh, you're going to lose your salvation. That's not what we're talking about. However, they were exposing themselves to demonic influence, and there would be spiritual consequences. And lest you think yourself immune from the influence of Satan and his demons, consider Consider this, dear friends, Satan went after none other than the Son of God himself. Satan went after Christ. He led Jesus into the wilderness. He showed him the kingdoms of the world. He took him to the top of the temple, tempting him in Luke chapter 4. What did Satan want? He wanted the same thing that he wants now. He wanted worship. Same thing he wants now. If Dear friends, if Satan had the audacity to come after the Son of God, the one who created him, rest assured, dear ones, that he and his demonic minions will not hesitate to come after you and to come after me. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If Satan will come after Christ, he's not going to be too intimidated by you and me. All right? All right, dear friends, we are out of time. All right, we have a couple more programs to go, a little bit more ground to cover. I hope that you're finding this interesting. I know it's probably uh, very foreign to uh, what many of you have been taught before, just kind of um, maybe assume, you know, Santa's just no big deal, but uh, but but it is a big deal. Uh, keep in mind 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Were the pagan deities real? No, no. You could stick your tongue out at them. They wouldn't take offense but there were real demonic forces at work behind them. Okay, and it's the same thing with Satan. I mean, with um, <laughs> with Santa. All right, dear friends, thank you very much for joining me. By the way, let me tell you in our closing, my book is done. 
it is um, technically it is published. I'm still working on getting it on my website, but uh, very very soon, very soon. Uh, hopefully, hopefully within the next week. I'll, I'll say week uh, should have it published and on my website and available for you to um, to order and uh, get a copy of it. The title of it is Do Not Hinder Them, A Biblical Examination of Childhood Conversion. Long last, it is ready. All right, dear friends, thank you very much. Until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or interested in more teaching resources, or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.